Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. For copyright and disclaimers, as well as information about how to contact the iCritical Care staff, please listen to the notice at the end of this podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast, recorded Wednesday, April 6, 2011. I'm your host, Dr. Margaret Parker. Joining us today is Ramya Srinivasan, MD, lead author of an article published in the January 2011 Pediatric Critical Care Medicine titled Plasminogen Activation Inhibitor Concentrations in Bronchoalveolar Lavage Fluid Distinguishes Ventilator-Associated Pneumonia from Colonization in Mechanically Ventilated Pediatric Patients. Dr. Srinivasan is a pediatric intensivist at Sutter Memorial Hospital in Sacramento and a translational researcher at the University of California, San Francisco. The citation for this article is Pediatric Critical Care Medicine, 2011, Volume 12, Number 1. Thank you for being here, Dr. Srinivasan. Thank you for having me. Would you please start, Ramya, by giving us an overview of your study, um, what you did, and what your major findings were? Certainly. So, as you know, ventilator-associated pneumonia is one of the most common nosocomial infections and a leading cause of not only morbidity but mortality in both adult and pediatric units. Um, It has been associated in pediatric units up to an increase in fourfold in ICU length of stay, up to threefold in length of hospital stay, and an absolute increase in mortality up to 8%. Not only that, there is the economic burden to the nation where it's been estimated that it costs the nation about $1.5 billion a year, accounting for 1.75 million additional hospital days a year, which is really a lot. Now, um, the biggest problem is um, not so much we don't have ways to manage it, but early diagnosis and prevention. Our prevention is, of course, the main focus of management in VAP, but it still occurs, and we need ways to diagnose it early and treat it appropriate with antibiotics. Um, As you know, there's been studies that show early and appropriate antibiotics have decreased mortality in patients up to threefold. This is very important. Unfortunately, early diagnosis is currently hampered by an accurate diagnostic test for VAP. As you know, there's no universally accepted definition, but is often diagnosed based on the CDC um, criteria which have a range of reported sensitivities for diagnosis of VAP between 69 to 84% and specificities between the 69 and 75% range. We felt like there has to be a superior diagnostic out there that will lead to more appropriate and early administration of antibiotics when needed and decrease the use of unnecessary antibiotics which are associated with their own um, morbidities. Therefore, um, we decided to investigate some biological markers that have been studied not just in animal models, but also um, in the patient clinical settings. And the four biomarkers that we chose to study were plasminogen activator inhibitor, the soluble triggering receptor expressed on myeloid cells, or otherwise known as STREM1, as well as RAGE, uh, which is actually a receptor for advanced glycation and end products, as well as our own innate surfactant protein D. With these biomarkers, we wanted to um, see if there was 
an early, predictable, um, and specific way to diagnose the presence of an infection versus just airway colonization in patients, which would then lead to early and appropriate antibiotic use and ultimately lead to better outcomes in patients. The definitions you used basically were the the CDC definitions. How did you identify patients who had potential VAP versus uh, colonization? So our definition was based on clinical criteria because it is still very much a clinical diagnosis in the pediatric ICU um, practice. And um, if you have looked back in the published literature and the way it is practiced in medicine, oftentimes it is a CDC diagnosis, but oftentimes it's based on a qualified intensivist diagnosis based on all the evidence that they have. So we used both. Our criteria was I, for VAP was either they met CDC criteria based on age-specific changes in um, laboratory, radiologic, and cultural results, or they met a qualified pediatric intensivist diagnosis at the time that the BAL that was performed um, was taking place. Any disagreements between the CDC and the intensivist diagnosis we later resolved during the analysis phase with a blinded um, independent opinion of a second intensivist. And believe it or not, we only had four discrepancies um, out of the 33 patients that we had. What were your clinical criteria for doing the BAL? Our clinical criteria for doing um, the BAL for research purposes were if they um, had a endotracheal culture scent, meaning that the clinician was worried that this could be um, bacterial superinfection or ventilator-associated pneumonia in these mechanically ventilated patients. Once we knew that, we then um, approached the family and with a Children's Hospital Oakland um, Institutional Review Board authorized process went into a informed consent process, and if they consented, we would then, within 24 hours, perform a BAL. We performed, in about 50% of the cases, a mini BAL, which is a blind telescoping catheter um, process, and in the other 50%, there was actually the um, already a bronchoscopic BAL that was scheduled for the patient, and we got samples in that manner. And in both cases, it was for the explicit diagnosis of an infection inflammatory process. Um, In the case of bronchoscopy, it was also to go ahead and therapeutically clean out the airway, so to speak, and help uh, ventilation oxygenation in the patient. Why did you uh, select the particular biomarkers that you did to study? That is a very good question, um, since there are many biomarkers, as you know, out there. Um, What we wanted to do was start off with the epithelial cells that are in the uh, respiratory system. So type 1 alveolar rage, which is um, the receptor for advanced glycation and products, is made by type 1 alveolar cells and we know is involved in inflammatory lung injury. And we're actively currently understanding the full range of rage and the downstream implications for inflammation and ongoing um, infection. Number two, we picked um, surfactant protein D, which is produced by the type 2 alveolar cells, which we know is involved in innate immune function. Um, 
Then we moved on and wanted to look for global biomarkers and inflammation and infection that are specific to being triggered by the presence of bacteria. And that um, ended up being the um, S-TREM and the um, PI-1 biomarkers. What did you find when you measured these biomarkers? When we uh, measured these biomarkers, uh, what was very interesting was with RAGE, uh, SBD, uh, we did not find a trend as we would have liked to see with um, increasing levels of these biomarkers in those that had VAP versus those that just had airway colonization. With STREM, our adjusted model of regression models, we found there was a lot of confounding, and I should say that a lot of our patients were already on antibiotics by the time the BAL was done, because we do believe in early antibiotics, which has shown to decrease morbidity in VAP patients. So unfortunately, S-TREM seems to be modulated quite a bit by the presence of antibiotics, but the full extent and the mechanisms of that is unknown. And again, with S-TREM, we weren't able to show a trend of increased S-TREM with infection versus colonization. However, with PI-1, plasminogen activator inhibitor, we were definitely able to see a consistent trend with increased PI-1 levels in those that had VAP versus those that had colonization, even after we adjusted for other factors such as age, um, their PLOD score, which is organ dysfunction score, and their PRISM scores, which is their predicted mortality scores on admission to the ICU. So this was exciting for us that this was a robust biomarker that was able to quite clearly tell apart two groups of patient which we encounter in practice, which is those that have endotracheal colonization, which we can pick up just as well with an endotracheal culture, but is very hard to tell apart from a true parenchymal lung infection. And this biomarker was able to do so in this cohort of patients. Changing directions slightly, can you talk a little bit about um, the VAP prevention procedures that you have in your unit? You mentioned early on that uh, prevention of VAP is um, also an important part of critical care uh, as well as early treatment of VAP. So what have you done in your unit for VAP prevention procedures at the time that you were doing this study? Yeah, um, believe it or not, at the time of the study, we had a universal policy, which was actually checked off during the study by our research assistant. The head of the bed was kept up at 30 or higher. Uh, we had, we were doing daily spontaneous breathing trials at that point um, as well, and um, discontinuing mechanical ventilation as soon as it was no longer needed. We were at that time in an early phase of our daily oral care and making sure we had separate suction systems for oral um, and endotracheal um, care. So we did have the full cohort of uh, VAP prevention, the major VAP prevention strategies, which have been shown to decrease overall VAP rates uh, more than some of the others that are currently in the VAP bundle. Have you changed any of your um, VAP preventive procedures since you did this study? Um, in the unit, they have been no changes other than the daily oral care and the separate suction use is now universal and extremely robust. As far as the daily spontaneous breathing trials, 
they were already protocolized and they continue to be the same. And we just have had less need to educate everybody in the unit um, about the use of these over time. And we've actually branched out to um, educating parents, as you know, with uh, daily rounds about their use and have encouraged parents to also bring it up on a daily basis. Going back to your study, it's pretty intriguing that you potentially have a way to help identify a true VAP earlier. Uh, What are the implications of your study for clinical practice, do you think? Well, um, in this particular cohort where there's a high um, rate of early antibiotic use already started before we get actual lower respiratory tract um, sample for culture, a biomarker, as you can imagine, can be extremely helpful instead of um, waiting for a culture which may not grow because of, it was already in a setting of antibiotic or waiting for those 24 to 72 hours for culture growth. Um, as far as what we're seeing with PI-1, it has extremely high specificity. So um, with the log likelihood ratios, you can get, depending on the incidence of VAP in your unit, you can get a post-incidence of VAP based on this biomarker. And if it's below a certain threshold that your unit and as practitioners you feel comfortable with, in this case we were finding that with our, we had the specificity would lead to about a 13% incidence of um, VAP in most patients if they met the criteria of having PI-1 less than 2.8 nanogram per ml. This would probably make most of us very comfortable stopping antibiotics at that point. Um, As far as specificity, I know that Antibiotic use is what we've been focusing on and seems to be the biggest issues because we're all very cognizant about starting early antibiotics. If there are units that um, have and are starting to do BALs even prior to starting antibiotics, then the sensitivity of this particular cutoff of 2.8 nanogram per ml is about... 68% 68% or 67 to 68%. And this could be higher, and that's why we've kind of published the different cutoff points. You can use different cutoff points um, for your unit to get higher sensitivity Is that if that's what you're aiming for, which is when do I start um, antibiotics. Saying all of that, um, currently this is a, these are the results of a pilot study, although it's well-powered for one standard deviation difference in these biomarkers, which is a huge difference actually is what we're looking for, and the huge difference is what we find with PI-1. This means that we need to further validate these results with the larger cohort of mechanically ventilated, not just children, but I also feel adults, and this, if this further gets validated in those studies, then I think that this test, which is currently not commercially available, can be amenable to be made rapidly commercially available, as we've seen with um, procalcitonin. And after that point, I think as part of the validation studies, I feel strongly we need to perform a cost-benefit analysis as well, um, given the um, new healthcare system that we are currently trying to put into place, 
which will not just encompass the cost of the study and the cost of doing a BAL, but will encompass the benefits, which will not just be mortality, especially in the pediatric unit. It will be length of stay, length of um, need for mechanical ventilation, as well as decreased use of antibiotics and decreased overall incidence of multi-resistant organisms in the pediatric unit. I think those points are very valid about the potential benefit of doing a test like this, um, particularly with regards to antibiotic use and antibiotic resistance. Is this a test that can be done relatively quickly so that the turnaround time could be immediately or soon available to the clinician to help facilitate decisions regarding antibiotics? Um, As you know, with uh, most of these biomarker tests, they're um, enzyme assays, and there are ways to make them rapid. So I think we the burden is first upon us to go ahead and validate it in a larger cohort, and if that is there, we can get the industry to help us with the platform to make it an extremely quick turnaround assay, benchtop assay that can come back to the clinician in real time so that they can make a decision about starting and stopping antibiotics. I know that this is very possible because I'm actually working on another project now, which is a uh, different diagnostic test to look for the actual presence of bacteria and the resistance elements in that mic, and it's a microarray platform. And we have actually aimed and are able to have a turnaround time of eight hours in that. So I really feel, given that this is an enzyme assay, we could probably do this very quickly. That being said, also every hospital you know, uh, depends on how their laboratory is set up for batching samples versus doing it in real time. But even then, I would think within 24 hours, rather than waiting for the 48 to 72 for cultures, you should be able to get back this test, which will help the clinician make more rapid and appropriate decisions about antibiotic use in these critically ill patients. The whole issue of ventilator-associated pneumonia has been targeted as one of those um, healthcare-related complications that should not happen. Um, and obviously, your unit and probably most units make great efforts to prevent VAP. Um, at the same time, there's a lot of controversy over definitions of VAP. I think you alluded to that uh, earlier in your talk. You know, I suppose in an ideal world, we would prevent all VAP. There wouldn't be any more, and we wouldn't need a test like this. But the realities of critically ill patients are that between the difficulty making the diagnosis and the unpredictable courses of some of our patients, it sounds to me like a test like this might potentially be helpful, um, particularly in the setting of an uncertain diagnosis. I absolutely agree. Um, I know there's been published accounts of units with zero VAP rates for a few months to up to a year, and um, I haven't looked deeply into the literature to see how long they're able to sustain that and what kind of populations and incoming morbidities these patients have. As you know, pediatric units are usually very multidisciplinary, so we have post-op trauma and um, oftentimes even cardiac patients 
as well as our medical patients coming in. Um, as you know, there's also what they call uh, what we call very early VAP when patients, especially with um, traumatic brain injury, who are found out in the field who might aspirate right then and there, and so it becomes a VAP by the time they get ventilated in the field or at the minute they hit the ICU um, or the operating room. Um, those cases, unfortunately, are not quite preventable. You're right, and those need to be picked up early and treated appropriately. As far as total prevention in a unit, I think in a multidisciplinary unit, um, it behooves us and everybody, I think, at this point has a VAP bundle of sorts in place. And the uh, biggest uh, prevention mechanisms that have shown to decrease VAP rates have been actually head of bed, having the head of the bed up at least 30 degrees or higher in oral care. And despite that, there is a residua of VAP cases that will still uh, happen, again, because it is an artificial instrument that is in the airway and there are pulmonary mechanics that are altered by the ventilator mechanism itself. And therefore, there are going to be cases, um, depending on the uh, morbidity, disease burden in the unit of VAP, that unfortunately may not be completely preventable, but will need to be vigilant about and diagnose early and treat appropriately. And we're hoping some of these biomarkers will help um, some of those units um, do this rather rapidly. Well, thank you very much, Ramya. Do you have any final comments you'd like to make? Um, yes. Um, actually, I'd like to ask that um, as far as other uh, intensive care units and intensivists out there, if anybody's interested in joining us in putting together the larger cohort to validate this particular biomarker, that they get in touch with us because I think heterogeneity in units is uh, not a bad thing, but a very good thing in a study like this, which has um, implications for bettering patient outcomes as well as possibly in the future with a cost-benefit analysis, uh, de decreasing total health care cost um, for ventilator-associated pneumonia. Thank you, Ramya. Thank you, Dr. Parker. We have been talking today with Dr. Ramya Srinivasan from the University of California, San Francisco about the article, Plasminogen Activation Inhibitor Concentrations in Bronchoalveolar Lavage Fluid Distinguishes Ventilator-Associated Pneumonia from Colonization in Mechanically Ventilated Pediatric Patients, published in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine in January 2011. This concludes our podcast. Look for future podcasts featuring a wide variety of information important to critical care practitioners, including interviews with authors and discussions with prominent members of the critical care community. Visit www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information. For the iCriticalCare podcast, I'm Dr. Margaret Parker. Space is filling quickly for SCCM's popular Fundamentals of Critical Care Ultrasound course, taking place February 3rd and 4th, 2012, in Houston, Texas, USA. This course offers didactic presentations and hands-on skill stations for performing and interpreting ultrasound imaging. For details or to register, visit www.sccm.org ultrasound or contact SCCM Customer Service. 
The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is Margaret Parker, MD, FCCM, guest podcast editor for pediatrics. Dr. Parker is director of the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit at Stony Brook University in Stony Brook, New York. She also is a professor of pediatrics at Stony Brook University Medical Center. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.